Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. Today I'm welcoming Paul Nixon and Craig Gilbert. Paul is the CEO of the Epicenter Group and Director of Church Multiplication for Discipleship Ministries with the United Methodist Church. Epicenter exists to coach and equip transformational spiritual leaders for the 21st century. Paul is the author of 11 books. He lives on both the East and West Coasts of North America, in Washington, D.C., and in Southern California each of which is decidedly challenging for the 21st century church development. Craig Gilbert is a worship consultant and founder of Purposed Heart Ministries. From his ministry start in a small congregation to serving a church with eight distinctive worship communities involving more than 2,000 people, Craig has planned and presented worship in a wide variety of styles. Craig continues to consult every day with many congregations on how to strengthen their teams and systems to nourish great worshiping communities including beginning new services. Welcome to the show, Paul and Craig. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Oh, I just said um, I'm really excited to be talking to you and excited about this book. Uh, it was a great time to write it and collaborate with my, my co-author, Paul, and, and the other uh, folks who contributed. It was uh, a labor of love uh, for the ministries of the church, and uh, I really hope they'll, they'll dive into it. Great. Paul, how about you? Well, I um, I've been going to I've been showing up at local churches since I was two weeks old, and I think they're a lot of fun, and I love working with congregations. That's been my whole life, and so right now is a, a really weird and challenging time in congregational life. But I, thankfully, I've been traveling again, and uh, I'm getting out, spending some time with folks, and um, life. We're we're still human beings on this planet. And we still have the same spiritual needs, even though it's a very strange season. And it, um, church hasn't changed as much as we think it has. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we'll talk more about that here coming up. Paul, you just mentioned being in church since you were two, two weeks old, if I heard that right. Why don't you share more about your faith story, uh, what that looked like and what that looks like today? I grew up a minister's kid. So two weeks was about as long as you stay home and you show up. And um, I never had a break. I, I went into, I, had, I felt a call to ministry at the age of 16. Um, right behind my house here in Southern California, there's a big mountain. Right over the crest of that mountain is where I went to camp. And um, I met, met Christ there um, probably 50 years ago. And um, it's been a journey the whole, the whole way in ministry my whole life. So I, a lot of people get a little bit of a break, you know, and in late high school or college or young adult, I never had that. So um, that's a little bit, little bit about my faith journey. I, um, I really, because I, I grew up in kind of a secular environment in Southern Cal, I really have been passionate about evangelism and about connecting the people outside the walls of church and who don't get exposure to gospel with the people on the inside. And that's part of the reason I do what I do is trying to help make those connections. Paul, if I've read your work at all and understood understand you at all. I'm guessing you don't really want a break, but maybe maybe we can talk more about that later. <laughs> Craig, how about you? Um, so I'm I'm not that different from Paul. I grew up in uh church uh my my first uh my first journey into church was about as soon as they could get me there as well and uh sang my first solo in church when I was 4 uh, with my dad as the, as the, uh, the guest pastor. Um, I have a interesting, interesting journey in that, uh, I was raised assemblies of God. Um, I am an RCIA confirmed Catholic and I am a local pastor in the United Methodist church. So, um, I've, I've got them all covered right to left and back to the center. Um, and everything in between, um, that gives me a real love for every congregation, no matter where they are, no matter how they worship, no matter what they do to bring before the Lord. It is a, uh, 
if we can go Southern gospel, we can go cutting edge, uh, you know, modern, uh, go back as far traditional as you want. Uh, it's part of my heritage. It's part of what I've, what I've grown up doing. And so, um, just a, just a total love for Jesus and a, and a love for, uh, worship, all things worship. Craig, that could, that, that could also give you a Louisiana driver's license. All the, that you just <laughs> yeah, mentioned right there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, about uh, half my life in half my life in Texas, half my life in Louisiana, and uh, and a few scattered things around. But other than that, yep. Great, Craig. With that mixed background or diverse background, um, share about how perhaps that informs your spiritual practices today. I think for me, it's the it's it's understanding when people want a more. Uh, shall we say, spiritual or uh, emotional uh, worship experience, um, or if somebody wants a, you know, a church is seeking a more um, highly liturgical worship experience, I understand where it's coming from. I, I understand that root in their heart uh, of what they're trying to express. And I think what I've always used is uh, the terminology that I like, or the metaphor that I like to use is language. Um Everybody wants to talk to God and worship God in the language that they understand. And so for me, um, style so often gets to be uh, linked to either music or maybe it's preaching style or maybe it's the, um, the style of the, of the uh, building. But in my mind, it's a cultural language, that uh, a language of the heart that people want to speak and that people understand. And so uh, the diversity of my background just means I speak all of those languages and I enjoy speaking those languages and I understand them. And so uh, to me, the information is, is it, it helps me realize or helps me connect with congregations and, you know, whatever expression they're trying to bring before the Lord, it, it makes sense to me, um, which I think, I, I think is, a, is a benefit to the type of ministry and consulting that I do. Cool. Paul, how about you? What are spiritual practices that that tie into your your past or maybe uh, have been meaningful to you? Well, for me, I mean, the the whole tradition of worship in Protestant churches is still so powerfully formed by the the Catholic Mass. It sort of set the pattern of you know this is what you get up and you do on Sunday and you go to this event even if we don't have transubstantiation happening, you go to this event and it means that's what it means to go to church. And there's sort of a liturgical set of practices. Um, that against what Jesus talked about in the, um, he sent out the 70 or the 72, where you go and you just, you hang and you, and you, you have amazing conversation and you lean in, you receive the hospitality of strangers and, and the, the kingdom magic sort of happens there. Okay. These are two very different kinds of experiences, but I find both of them really powerful. And I, I don't think I can live without either of them. So there's the one, it's the structured kind of gathering that I have friends. I mean, I have ministers that dread going to worship on Sunday. For me, there, I, I have found it to be the most grounding thing of my life. And um, so I, um, I really do. During the pandemic, I, the, the verse came to me, you know, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go to the house of the Lord. And I thought, wow, I'll be glad when I can do that again. Um, and online is amazing. I mean, I, I, I got to where, you know, I could, I, I could sort of worship, sort of, you know, worship in that way. But, but to be gathered back in a space, first of all, when we came back outdoors in a prayer garden, um, and then coming back in, that is an important piece. But but on the flip of that, I am powerfully nourished by holy conversation that happens in a less structured way, that happens outside of church walls. And again, that goes back to sort of my calling. I need both of those kinds of, of um, practices and communities as a part of my spiritual rhythm, you know, in addition to all of the personal devotional stuff. I need to do, I'm an extrovert and I need to do my faith and community. I think that's, I think it's, I think it's great that Paul said that because that is actually my favorite scripture in the whole Bible. And when it comes to figuring out when churches, when church is doing what they're doing right. And that is my goal is for people to always say, I am glad, I was glad when they said, let's go to church. 
Uh, not I dreaded it, not, not, oh gosh, I guess I have to go, but I was glad to go. And uh, I love that. Absolutely. One of the things, Craig, that I noticed as I went back into the gathering was I noticed there was, there, I, I began to pay attention to sort of the energy um, of the, and, and where the energy came up. And it, it, it was, it was sort of like learning to walk again. If you've had leg surgery and your muscles aren't firing, I was just paying attention to stuff. And um, I began to notice that different services, the, the energy sort of converged around different points and it might be kind of dry and kind of cooking along and then ba-boom, you know, something happens. And it's that, that sort of attentiveness to the fact that God surprises us in different ways and different places in the gathering um, each week. It's a blast. Well, you've already talked about some interesting themes I hope to revisit here. Um, but we're here today to talk about your book that you both co-edited called Launching a New Worship Community, a Practical Guide for the 2020s. Um, so I think, first of all, we kind of talked about it here in fits and starts. The COVID pandemic kind of shapes our entire conversation here. And I think the first question I really just have to ask is, of all the times to publish a book on launching something <laughs> new, uh, Craig, what what do you think? Like, like, have you, I don't know, maybe laughed at it even? Well, there's, yeah, there, so there was no pandemic when we started this book. Um, we, uh, Paul and I were uh, in his living room uh, at his house, just having a conversation. And we began to talk about, um, you know, this idea of writing a book about launching a new worship community. Actually, we're just talking about launching services and the idea to write a book came out of it. Um, that was a little over two years ago, um, and it was the it was the summer before, and it is um, it it became a, an interesting journey. Uh, but I can't think of a better time actually for this book to be published because um, you know you when when you face something like this, you to me you have two choices: you can crawl in a hole, or you can be bold and move forward. And um, that's what this book is calling for is is a boldness, but yet at the same time, a discerning of God's spirit. And it's I, I can't think of a, in, in many ways, I can't think of a better time for this book than coming out of a pandemic. I don't know if Paul agrees with me, but I know that's kind of how I've approached it. I like it. Yeah, Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure if everybody's ready, um, internally ready to, to receive what's in the book. Um, I think that's unfortunate, honestly, that because Craig talked about going down in a hole, I think there's a lot of folks that are sort of still um, dealing with or processing all of the, the challenges of the pandemic, and they're in a survival mode as opposed to a, to a um, proactive kind of mode. But we highly highly encourage people to, even if they're feeling wobbly, to get out of their hole, <laughs> because there's never been a better opportunity as people are sort of re-emerging, patterns are re-emerging. People are, are I mean, even unchurched people that have been exposed to great online ministry are now at a place of openness about new ways of spending their weekend, you know. Um, it's really a great opportunity. It's a great moment, um, very dynamic um, moment for a lot of people. I hope some folks see this is the best time ever to be launching new ministry. It's so interesting you talk about that um, change in patterns or rhythms of life because I think most people negatively think, oh, people are going to be so used to not going to church. And you're saying, hey, the opposite is also true. Uh, people have. Uh, are are reestablishing or making new rhythms in their life that could be church or or some other kind of as you all are going to talk more about uh, worshiping community. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So I think one theme that really stood out to me in this book was this idea that we need to rethink church planting, and uh, I'm going to flip through here and just read a quote from your book if I can find it here that really stood out. Um, 
You kind of talk about how ministry startup leaders worked hard to get traction in order to make something happen. As long as they did fill in the blank, then they could be assured of success. And if they weren't successful to the point of, again, fill in your metric of success, then they were often looked upon as lacking in crucial leadership skills. And uh, I can I can attest, uh, personally, we don't have time to talk about it now, about having gone through that uh, formula and knowing the challenges. Um, so maybe, Craig, talk about maybe that formula and why it doesn't work. And then, Paul, I'm going to have you talk about uh, this other way of doing things you suggest on page 23. But, Craig, go ahead. Well, I, I think that, the, you know, whatever you fill in the blank with, um, it, it just, it, it, it's, it's almost as if, it, it's almost as if there are, are these set rules and that if you don't follow these rules, then somehow you're lacking. And now is a time when actually there aren't any rules uh, in a lot of ways, or the rules have been rewritten, or we're rewriting the rules as we go. Um, and I think that that's one of the challenging things that we've seen. Uh, I know I, I serve in a church, and, and one of the challenging things we've seen is that um, in some ways, there's a desire to get back to what was before, but then in another ways, it's like, well, wait a minute, we don't have to go backwards. We can actually go, we can actually strike out in a whole new direction. Um, and so I think a leader who, who just starts, who begins defining their approach here based off of what was, is limiting them, themselves, uh, missing this opportunity of, we actually can rewrite some rules or, you know, strike a whole new path forward. Um, you don't have to stay. You don't have to stay in in the in the lane that you were in before. I don't know, Paul. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, rules are contextual, and they grow out of they grow out of what's worked in a certain setting. In the late twentieth century, I was a part of a major planting project, and then right after the turn of the century, a second one. And we we followed the playbook that of what was working in our part of the world in that certain time. And oh my goodness, it was. I mean, we innovated some things too, but we followed a lot of the of the basic rules, and it 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 worked well if you followed that because it was contextual. We couldn't that that rule book would be a waste of time today. I, it, you know, it's twenty two years since since that project, and um, it and we couldn't get half those people in that room, maybe not a third, doing what we were doing, even though it was pretty good at that point. So I now. The, the fun of the fun of post pandemic is that we're in a new world and we have to pay attention to new ways that people do community technology um, social media it's a different it's a different setting yeah so this quote on page 23 I want to read to you Paul and hear your response uh, y'all write our role as leaders in this ministry moment is to look for folks who resonate with our deepest sense of purpose and partner with them to become, along with them, co-creators of a future which we currently do not know. And then you write uh, later here, wherever and whenever spiritual community emerges, worship is a normal and expected response. But I love that thought of, again, thinking of this as church planning or worship starting, whatever terminology we want to use, rather than that, again, what I'm assuming when I think of when we talk about this tried and true formula not working anymore, but this new idea of co-creators uh, that uh, is a response and worship is in a response. Tell me more about that if you could. Well, honestly, I don't even remember writing that. So I'm hearing it, you know, because I write a lot of stuff. So I don't remember writing that. So as I listen to it now, having written that, I guess um, a year and a half ago, um, as I listen to it now, what it reminds me is that my best partners in creating new things have been people who were marginally connected or disconnected from organized church. And rather than being these ignorant pagans out there that were clueless, they were the wise ones. They had spiritual intuition. I baptized some of them because they hadn't had that, but they had spiritual experiences. They had relationship with God that was emerging. We, we were able to put some form on it with Christian discipleship, but it's amazing how the Holy Spirit is already out there stirring, very tangibly stirring and working in the lives of people. And, and then 
God just sort of pulls us together. And, and often as I coach new people doing new things, whether it's a new worship service or whatever, if you're six months in and it's all the same familiar characters from inside the church that are on the team and there's no new voices, there's no new connections, it's like, whoa, time out. We're not, we're not doing this in a way that is really playing with our community, you know, spiritually. You know, and it reminds me there, we have a, we have historical precedence for this in some ways. Um, you know, if you think of the Jesus movement, for instance, and, you know, there's Chuck Smith at, at Calvary Chapel in a, um, you know, wearing a suit to church every single day, uh, you know, worshiping in a very traditional fashion, but yet he opened the doors and invited people in that didn't look like him, didn't sound like him, didn't play instruments like him, didn't, you know, didn't sing like him, and yet made room for them in his church and, and co-created with them. And from that, we get the Jesus movement, we get Maranatha music, we get a whole, you know, a whole birth of a whole revival in the United States coming out of that. And that was a chance of a church person stepping out of the door and saying, I'm going to partner with these group of people who are not in church. Um, it's, it's funny to me sometimes that we have these, um, we have these examples, even recent examples of how this works. And yet church leaders today so often miss that miss that object. They're going to build it internally around a, a conference table, you know, somewhere deep in the heart of the existing building, and they're going to figure out how to evangelize the community. And they forget that walking out the door and actually meeting people and building relationships with people is the best way uh, to build new community uh, if you don't want it to just look and sound like everything else you're doing. That's Calvary Chapel and, and Vineyard, right? Came out of Chuck Smith. I don't know Vineyard, but Calvary Chapel. Not Vineyard. Yeah, Vineyard was another thing. And right. both of those were influential in my early life because they're both Southern California things. I, I, sat, I sat on the shag carpet in Costa Mesa in, with, with, with Chuck and listened to him preach back in the day. So. Well, it's interesting, uh, Craig, this kind of touches on something I was going to highlight later, but since you mentioned it, uh, in towards the end of the book, you talk about onboarding processes and how the old kind of formula – uh, at least perhaps years and years ago, was what? Get people in the door on a Sunday morning, uh, connect them to a Sunday school class, and then get them involved in the church. And you all talk about how now it's kind of the reverse, is you can connect with people through uh, outside the walls, a community engagement, whether it's a service project or some mission outreach, and then connect them perhaps to a small group and then eventually perhaps to you know, a core group within the church and regular participation on the Sunday morning experience. Um, so again, I think that's a fascinating way about how that, that formula has completely flipped itself on its head. Paul, what do you think about that? A lot of things have flipped, but, but yeah, um, the, the worship service is not always the front door in this culture. Sometimes it's the last place you arrive. Um, and churches need to have lots of front doors. And there's a lot of, but the worship service is a front door for some folk, you know, and the larger the church grows, the more it becomes that early on when, when, when you are a small planet, you don't have a lot of gravity. There's not much attractional, anything going to happen unless you're inviting someone and showing them in the door. Um, you, you, often it's going to be, they're going to discover it's whatever anybody invites them to. So what is the easy invitation? Sometimes it's the mission project. Sometimes it's my home group or the or the just the get together in the backyard with a um, with a men's group that's going to do a barbecue. Those may be the the entryways because it's it's the easiest way to invite the actual neighbors we have who aren't necessarily looking for a good church. But the larger that the movement grows, the more the church shoppers begin to find us and the spiritual seekers, the ones that want to come in anonymous, and the attractional thing begins to make sense. Once we've grown <laughs> past a thousand people, you know, then that, that really begins to kick in. So I don't think attractional is gone, but especially when you're starting out, it's a, it's a highly invitational um, yeah. um, thing. Craig, uh, you talked about the, or at least I think it was from you, not Paul, uh, the temptation just to go back to the past. And I think that's one of the things that's grieving me most right now during our time as we're recording this. It's what, uh, fall 2021. And I think I see so many churches be like, whew, that's over. We can go back to what we're doing. Uh, and I think about this temptation to go back 
Uh, and I think about this, what you said about like planning outreach strategies that all revolve around current members sitting at, at a, I love the image of like a boardroom, thinking about what are we going to do? Not thinking about, not involving and in, in engaging outsiders. Um, one of the things you write, or at least it's in the book here, I forget who the chapter, who wrote this chapter, but uh, is about how new worship services need to not be focused on us, but in engaging what other people think. What do you think is a, I guess it's a multifaceted question here is a, how do you break out of that temptation just to um, look only at yourself and what y'all like? And how do you flip that trend to be like, Hey, how are we going to look outward to design worship and programming around what people outside of this community want? I, I think it's twofold. I, I think, first of all, I think you're exactly right. It, it, there, there's a desire to reconnect with the folks who were there before, and I think that's healthy. I don't think there's anything wrong with that coming out of COVID. I mean, we've got um, a diaspora, if you will, the, of, of people who have, you know, whether they, they don't get off their couch anymore and they only go to pajama church, uh, I, I, that's what I call I just call it pajama church. You, you know, I, I got my breakfast on my TV tray and I'm, I'm watching church. Um, but we're trying to get these people to come back into, you know, we want to reconnect. We have relationships that we miss. I mean, that was part of what made church church for us. And so, you know, trying to reconnect with those folks, get those folks back in the building. You know, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that's part of what the church needs to do. Um, but the second part, and going back and finishing that, I'm going back to aspects of worship that, that again, speaking in our language, I mean, those were things that meant something to us. That's why we were in that church to start with. It's why we were worshiping as a body to start with. So I don't want to disparage that at all. In fact, I think that that's a, you know, it's part of our family history. It's part of our family story, and you don't want to lose those stories in history. But I think the second part is I'm wondering if the church is finally starting to realize that culture itself has changed and that the days of, you know, there was a time when a church could throw its doors open and culture itself drove people into the, into the building, even if, they, even if they weren't looking for God. Um, I mean, I, I attended a church for a little while where in its history, not in its recent history, but in its past history— for instance, you couldn't run for city council if you weren't a member of that church. You know, that was that was part of the history of that church church's relationship with the city. And so my point is is that a church could throw its doors open and culture said, I mean, we had blue laws, we had we said you 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 know, we didn't schedule things on Wednesday nights, even in civics even civic organizations left Wednesday night kind of sacred because they knew everybody would be at church on Wednesday night. Um that culture's gone. Um, I mean, it's it's. In fact, if anything, the the post Christian culture drives people away from church, and so the church. So a church that sits on a hill and opens its doors and says, "Y'all come," I think is misunderstanding the the community that they're serving because the the help of culture is is no longer there. So yes, we should be reconnecting with the people that we're missing, but it, that were there. But if we really want to bring in new folks, the only way to do that now is to go out the door and go find them and invite them. Because that personal invitation, I agree with Paul. There is a, I, I love his comment about a uh, gravitational pull of a large church. Uh, and that certainly draws, draws people in a way that a smaller church can't do or rarely can do. But the thing that I think draws people even more is that relational invitation and there are so many Christians that I talk to, and I ask, you know, who have you invited to church? Well, I haven't invited anybody. We're not doing the work. Um, we've got to get out and do the work. We've got to get out and and shake hands and and meet people in civic in civic situations, or you know, uh, or putting our small groups and our men's groups and things like that, women's groups, put them outside the walls, and and try to connect to people that are in our neighborhoods that you know. Maybe aren't don't know that they're looking for God or don't know that they're looking for a, a church community and what a church community can do for them. Yeah, Paul, what are your thoughts there? Well, yeah, the buildings are in some cases aging, in other cases they're doing fine, but they're still they 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 become more they feel more and more like fortresses 
to people who, for whatever reason, don't think that's their world inside there. And it may not be that they think anybody's judging them, or they may not have any negative kind of thoughts. It's just not their world. And so I think we really have to increasingly get out of, get out of our buildings. And, and I was just thinking earlier today, I mean, this very day I was thinking I would love to maybe shift at some point, maybe as I get older and I'm not traveling as much, and, and to really do work with an architect around um, building design. Because I really do think churches have to have space, you know, sacred space. But ministry has to transcend those places. And the churches that are alive outside those walls, whether it's through home small groups, it's through um, ministries with kids or with homeless or whatever's going on in the community, if those churches are out and mixing and mingling and building relationships, whatever's going on in the church house is doing fine. It's the churches that are, that are, most churches are, once they step outside their walls, it's like they've stepped outside a spaceship onto the terrain of you know, the moon, and they don't have any clue. They don't have any clue what's going on around them. They've been, they've been traveling in to, to come inside that building, you know, for years. And inside that building, it's, it's a familiar space. So one of the things that I most appreciate about this book, and I, one of the reasons I'd highly recommend it to listeners, is how practical it is. And as much as we're talking theoretical right now, the book is very practical, and I want to kind of shift into some of these practical things. But Paul, you've given me a great invitation here, talking about architecture and kind of space layout, usage, decoration, whatever the word is, um, interior design. It's funny because you you if I heard you right, you kind of hinted at how like walking into a church can almost be walking into another culture, another mm. planet. And it's true. My God, I was in a, a church this spring where I'm like, boy, no one in the community is going to connect with what this church looks like. Uh, passionate about this stuff. Uh, let's talk maybe some practical things because we're we're talking about launching launching a new worshiping community. What are some practical things people need to think about, be aware of, just as far as like the building of the space? Uh, and and I'd love to hear maybe if we have time, like your ideas about what a a new building space might look like. But maybe an existing existing space versus Craig. Why don't you take existing spaces and Paul? You can give us some theoreticals about what you've been thinking about architecturally. Well, I think existing spaces need to be looked at from, um, like you said, a practical point of view of what are what story are they telling, and how much and how clearly are they telling that story? So, you know, if I walk into your church and it's pews in, um, you know, ruby red pews with white oak, and um, you know, a, a you know ruby red carpet. Um, and a uh, a modesty rail between the choir loft and the you know the traditional that traditional sanctuary look uh, high a frame you know what story does that tell and it's not that it's a bad story it's just knowing what the limitations of that are and saying okay we're proud of this if you are and and then saying okay so what does that mean for somebody who's walking through the door I think that that's the the part that Maybe sometimes we're not always honest, um, and I want us to be—I want us to look at the space and be honest about what it does. I, I, you know, I struggle when churches say, "Yeah, we want to put a—we uh, want to put a, a cutting-edge contemporary service in this, you know, 1960s era um, uh, traditional space," and they don't want to change anything physically. And so, for me, the space has to communicate the story that's being told in the room. Um, and then if you're going to tell a different story in the room, what changes are you willing to make to the space in order to do that so that it's, you know, it, 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 it's congruent? Because I think that's one of the hardest parts is the disconnect as people walk in, they're expecting one thing, they get something completely different and it's, and it's not always, um, or sometimes they get exactly what they think they're going to get. And it's not, that's not good either. I'm just saying, you know, uh, that's not always the best connection either. So, um, you know, I think just being honest about our spaces, the limitations and the possibilities, um, and not always my, one of my favorite and not one of my favorite, uh, pictures here is I grew up in the South and I call it grandma's living room. Um, 
there was always grandma's living room and it was it was never to be touched it was never to be entered by anyone that was not invited there were certain things that could not be moved um you sat down with care um and that space was not very child friendly you know in fact children weren't allowed in that space and so many of our sanctuaries come across as grandma's living room um and if that's the story you're trying to tell well you're doing it well but if that's not the story you're trying to tell, then you've got to be honest about that and be willing to move some things around and try some, you know, try some new things. Um, but anyway, that's just one example. I love me some mid-mod, mid-century modern architecture. But, you know, I think that's one of the things we don't think about enough in mainline Protestantism, or maybe Protestantism in general, is that architecture spaces have a message, share a message. Uh, mm -hmm. So, Paul, I want to hear what are your thoughts on just this broader architectural, architectural excuse me, trend and what messages and how we might shape our architecture going forward to better speak our message that we want to convey. I think a lot of the time we're, we are going to be working with existing space um, because of the cost of construction and so forth. Um, I think that's going to be a lot of the conversation. Sometimes it's great when congregations have the wisdom and the courage to sell a particular property and trade it for something that's going to be a little more adaptable to the moment rather than being locked in. But a lot of times you can re, you can repurpose space. I, um, I'm, I work with a church in Texas that um, had a, you know, I think the building overall probably was, had been around probably 80 years, but they, and, and the fellowship hall, I mean, it could have been a prison cafeteria. You know, it was not, it was not pretty. It was not, but they, you know, they painted the ceiling black. They did some sound treatments in there. They got some good, they got some good multimedia in there. They, they, they added tables. They got the lighting right. And it's an amazing worship space. Now that's you in know? the cafeteria or what was the cafeteria? That was a fellowship hall that became a, it, it's still, it's, they call it the community hall or something, but it's the, um, it, it's an amazing place worship space but they the, but for the new service that they launched they didn't put it in the in the gorgeous stained glass space that they have it on the other end of the building they launched it there because it was they were able to control sound lighting and and ambiance better in that room i would say um you know the best new building that i've been in new-ish building um in the last five years was um the gathering in st louis um St. Louis went from like 800,000 to 300,000 people. So during that period in like 50 years, so there had not been any other new startup constructions of church facilities in decades in St. Louis until this church was built because it was a shrinking population. Nobody was starting churches in that situation, but this church started and did real well. And what I think it's a model in the sense that the lobby was as big as the seating area. Yep. Yep. And, and they, and, and it was an amazing, with conversational areas, um, it was like a big hotel lobby. It was very inviting, and you could sort of relax. And there were people that never went into the main room. They were, they were watching on the big screens, and they stayed in the lobby. They were singing the songs in the lobby. They weren't even, not, not standing up, but sitting in their chairs with their cup of coffee. They were connecting, but they were also doing hospitality with a whole bunch of people that weren't quite ready for the big room. Well, Meanwhile, in the big room, um, you know, it was pretty full. If I were, if they were building it post COVID, that was this was pre COVID. They probably make that room two thirds the size because people don't show up as much at one time and place. It takes more services at different times, and people, you know. But the other piece they had was they had a multi-purpose children's area that was designed for Sunday morning, but they could be used all week long. Um, and then their offices were in a complex two blocks away. That's kind of where facilities are right now. You're 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 create you're creating a place where community can happen. Both God community, you know, in the presence of God, worship intentional worship time, as well as other kinds of community building. And then beyond that, they had living rooms, they had coffee shops, they had um, basketball courts all over St. Louis where they could be in ministry. They weren't trying to put everything into that into that building. There's some things I want to highlight there. Uh, the big inviting lobby. I think too often uh, older churches are not designed. They have a small kind of narrow entryway, and I think 
Think phone booth. Yes. Yeah. I think any way you could expand that would be hugely beneficial. Uh, I also want to highlight, because I think this is so important. There's a church I would love to sit down with their pastor and say, uh, move your contemporary service to your gymnasium, because I think it'd be a better space for what they're trying to do. So I think it's really intriguing that church you mentioned in Texas that has moved their, I don't know what kind of service they call it, but they've moved it to a, a space they can they call it they call it community but you know a lot of a lot of churches are dying inside of a big big building that was built for another era if you could just like take out 40% of that or half of it and and create a create the hotel lobby and then push people closer together in worship that would be an amazing um, improvement for a lot of a lot of places yeah, and I, I know, Craig, I'm sure, I think this is in the book, and I'm sure this is something that you you work with churches all the time. The challenge of space, I think the 80-20 rule, or what's what's the rule about? Like, oh, yeah. You know, the rule about like if a building or a seating area feels too empty, it just sends a message like no one cares about this. And I mean, it's a totally different vibe. Uh, if you walk into a room that has seating for 100 and there's 60, 70 people in there, Versus if you walk into a room that has seating for 400 people and there's 70 people in there. Yeah, it's, it's actually, I'm actually living that right now. Um, the church where I serve, uh, we lost our sanctuary, uh, which seats about 900. Uh, we lost it during, we lost it during a freeze um, this past year. And we've been worshiping in a space that seats 300. Um, of course, COVID kind of took care of some of that attendance issue um, but it has been amazing to watch folks, um, coming in and some of them are sitting next to people and sitting closer together than they ever had, than they have in years. Um, and how much better the singing has become and how much better the socializing has become as they've, as, because the room itself has created community. Uh, you, you know, it just by sheer numbers, the room creates community, whereas some rooms, as Paul said, some of these buildings were built for another era and um and and you'll have a you know a church worshiping 400 in a in a building that seats a thousand it's hard to build community in that room um it's just it's a it's a challenge uh because of the just the the sheer amount of of acreage that's in there that you're trying to cover um it's it's hard and you got to work at it um and i'm not sure sometimes i'm not sure you can overcome it i i think sometimes you you almost have to what I want to touch on just real quick is what Paul said, the churches that are bold enough to trade in space, you know, trade in the space that they have for a different space. And I want to, I just want to give one example. Again, you talked about this being practical and I love pulling in imagery that people understand. If, if you have a church that wants to communicate, for instance, to young families, and we were talking about the 1960s kind of, you know, community, um, you, you don't give a young family a 1966 Impala, you give them a minivan because they need a minivan. And we understand that. We, 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 would, try, we would trade in the 66 Impala for the minivan because we need the minivan. Um, you know, we understand it with cars. We're not afraid to trade those in and trade up. And I know buildings are different and I have a lot of, you know, they have a lot of uh, sentimental value and stuff. But I do think when we talk about practical, churches are not always practical when they're looking at when they're looking at things, and so I, I I completely agree with Paul. I love those churches that are bold enough to try something new. Well, we're quickly running on time here, but I want to ask you a couple more questions if I can. Um, again, thinking practically, uh, I think one of the things that's most often tried in new church, new worshiping community settings is going uh, off the script. So Saturday night weeknight, whatever. And you, in the book, it talks about how it's rare for non-Sunday morning worship communities to become self-sustaining. Um, why, I mean, what is, do you, what's, do y'all have some research experience about why just going away from Sunday morning just doesn't work despite the cultural shifts? Or do you think that's even, that might be changing? Yeah, it might be changing. I mean, we, we don't know. I mean, it, it, it might be changing, but, um, Unchurched people still understand or expect that churches meet on Sunday morning, and so that's when, that's where they go looking. 
It's just where they're geared to look. Now, you can overcome that if you have, a, if you have something that meets in a time space that works for their family um, or for their lifestyle. I mean, you could, they're not locked in, but that's just where they start looking. So I think that's a part of why it's easier to get to sustainability on Sunday morning. But there's, there's, some, there's some populations that are going to thrive better on a Sunday evening or a Thursday night. Greg? No, go ahead. God, I completely agree. I got another dad. Again, going to practical here, I think throughout the, the book, a major theme was the little things matter. Uh, why do little things matter? And maybe give me an example each of what a little thing that you've experienced in your career or ministry that mattered. I think for me, it's that it's, it's about, it's about speed. Um, we get so, we're in such a hurry. We have so much that we're trying to do. And I'm talking about as leaders in ministry. So when I say little things matter, I'm talking about as a leader, we get, we get so much in a hurry. And I, I'm just going to give you one example that I, I really feel that I'm, that I still have to learn. It's so funny. I've, I've learned, I've had God shove it in my face so many times and I still need to learn it. Um, we work so hard every week to put together a worship service where we feel like God can be experienced, where, where we know God is present, but we want people to know that and feel it and be. And, and when that actually happens and someone walks out and they, and they have experienced God in a way that was meaningful enough to them that they walked over to speak to us and say, you know, thank you for that song or, or thank you for that sermon um, or, you know, whatever it was that they connected with that week. We can be so preoccupied with the business of the church, the, the production of worship, or, you know, just preoccupied with our ministry, right, our job, that we completely miss that affirmation. And and that opportunity to connect with an individual and affirm and recognize the power of God in their lives that they experienced that day. And and to me, so it's a little thing for us because it's like a blip in our in our day. But for them to have the to be so moved to take the time to come and talk to a church leader, identify someone and say, you know, I'm gonna go tell that person how much today meant to me. Or, or how much this action meant, or how much it, you know, it impacted my life. And we can just, we can just blow straight through that. Um, I think that's one of those things that uh, I, I think of, you know, Jesus healed the not, healed the 10 and only one came back and said, thank you. And Jesus said, where's the other nine, right? I feel like I'm the other nine sometimes. Uh, you know, I got a, I got, I, I got what I was looking for. We were building it. Now I'm moving on. And here's this person coming to tell me, thank you. And it's my opportunity to recognize and say, thank you to God for that. And so it's that, I think that's one example of a little thing that's little to us, but it's not little to them. Yeah. Good. Paul, how about you? I don't know if it's a little thing. I think it's a big, huge thing, but we sometimes think of it as a, as a minor thing. The the special people who emerge to create the, the whole ambience of life and love in that lobby space, in that parking lot zone, in all of those critical spaces before people walk into the worship room, that is, I, I continue to marvel at how that is often the the space that makes the difference between the church that grows and the one that does not. Excellence is often happening in the sanctuary and, and there's no growth, but I, I seldom see a church dying if there is dynamic life happening in the lobby. And it, and it always comes back, I think, of certain people. We have a guy at our church here who wears um, like colorful socks and shorts. He's like 80 years old. And he does not have great legs, and he just lights up. <laughs> he just lights up the place. <laughs> we had a, it, it, when I went when I went to the gathering in St. Louis. I am with the woman who ran the room when I was planting, and the two of us walk in. Okay, and we say, "Okay, there she is behind that desk over there, the information desk. Let's go over there and just see what happens." In about forty-five seconds, we said, "We're new here." Hi. 
And she said, oh, I remember the day I came here. This was my last stop, and I would have given up on church. And then she gave us about a 30-second testimonial on how this place saved her life. And it was like, man, she she turned up the, the expectancy of what was going to happen when we walked through the doors. Um, it's the magic happens in that room as often as it happens in the room where Craig and I have spent most of our time. Yep, I agree. I want to highlight that just as perhaps one practical thing we can give to people. We've been kind of talking around it, how important the lobby, whatever we want to call it, the narthex. I know churches have different words. How important what happens in that room is from the decorations, which you all have talked about, how it looks, how people engage with new people. I mean, that perhaps, if anything, we, when we talk about starting something new, we want to focus on what happens inside the worshiping space. And maybe, maybe I'm wondering if, the most important thing to think about is what's going to happen outside that space. Uh, mm. So it's, again, it's, it goes back to what I, what I mentioned from your book from the top, that everything is backwards almost. Like it starts outward and then it goes in to um, into the worship space. So um, let's let me ask you one more question if I can. Um, give me, give our listeners one piece of advice uh, going forward. Um, Craig and then Paul finishes up. Wow. Um, I think my piece of advice is be bold. Um, I, I, I know why you, why we want to be conservative. I know why we want to be, um, reserved, especially in this time, but I would encourage folks to be bold, but now, but listen to God first. Um, don't be bold on your own. Uh, do some discerning, but you know, if you, if you hear something from God or you feel a call from God, that seems like it's just, it's like, that's just crazy talk. Well, maybe it's not. Um, I, I just, I feel like God's got something for the church. And if you can't figure out how to do it, then maybe you're on to something because if you didn't need God to do it, then maybe it wasn't that bold after all. Um, you know, stepping forward in faith and and being bold to do that. I that's I think we should I think we should have the courage and the faith to do that. Paul, how about you? Get a small team, three, four, five people, and have sixty conversations in the community before you do anything. And then pay attention to where you see the spirit moving and show up in that space. I'm writing this stuff down. I'm writing this stuff down. That's why the pause. Well, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Craig Gilbert and Paul Nixon. Thank you guys for this time and the conversation. Really appreciate your perspectives. Uh, I always tell folks you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Um, so, Paul, if you're Pope for a day, what does that day look like? What do you want to do? That kind of thing. If I am Pope for a day, um, oh my, that would be, that would be um, an interesting thing. Um, I mean, you could contextualize it. Like if you're the, what's the United Methodist biggest person, you know, you can contextualize it if you need to. I'll tell you what I would do. I would um, probably get on the phone and I would call the least and the lowliest priests if I were Pope. And I would um, give them ten minutes each, and I would just encourage them because some of the because some of the some of the best work and in, in the is happening in places that are people that feel invisible, and I think most of us have had experience, especially early in ministry, of of just wishing somebody higher up the flagpole would would come and pay us a little attention, and maybe just so we know we're not alone. That's probably what I would do. Probably. Yeah, middle adjudicatory leaders, if you're listening, do that right now. <laughs> Craig, how about you? All right, so mine's a, uh, so I'm going to go bold, like I just said. If I was Pope for the day, I would say that every fifth Sunday, every church under my under my influence, every fifth Sunday, the church would have to not meet for worship, and they would have to partner with a civic organization and help. So, not the church's food bank, somebody else's food bank. 
not the churches, not the churches feed the homeless. Somebody else's feed the homeless, not the church's ministry, somebody else's, some civic organization's ministry. Partner up with a Rotary Club, partner up with a Lions Club, partner up with somebody in the in the community and take take Jesus out uh, and 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 invest into the community that they're serving uh, and actually serve. Um, and that would be every fifth Sunday. So that's not too much of a burden. That's four Sundays a year. Uh, so that's what I would do. Good. Um, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life. Craig, start us off here. Uh, <laughs> um, all right. So mine's kind of mine may be kind of weird, but I'd love to meet Billy Graham and figure out and figure out how he was able to cross so many lines and be able to talk to and have the ear of so many different people. Uh, just, you know, across every, every cultural line, every political line, it didn't matter. You know, he had influence and, and, and was able to speak to just an unbelievable number of people. And I'd love to figure out how that happened. Yeah. Paul, how about you? Well, the apostle Paul would be fun to talk to. Um, I really like the guy from what I understand about him. Um, I like sort of his obnoxious edge too. I, I, I really do. But in, in more modern times, I say modern, um, my great-great-great-great-great-great-dot-dot-dot-grandfather was the first circuit rider to cross the Mississippi um, in, into Louisiana when it was Catholic, and they were always trying to chase him and tar and feather him. I, his name was Joseph Willis, and I would love to spend a day or a week you know, riding horseback with him and meeting some of the people that, that he was— um, ministering to out in the, the bios of Louisiana, usually no more than 20 people at a place before he would ride a horse or a canoe to the next place. How interesting. Um, what do you think history will remember, Paul, from this current time and place? History will remember that this was a turning, this was a turning point. Um, for some churches, it was a turning point where the Titanic fell in half and it went down fast. Um, But I think for others of us, it was a turning point where the relationship between churches and building shifted forever. Yeah, good. Craig? I think this is going to be the, this is going to be the spot where, where people will figure out if the church can actually be the church to the masses, be the church to everyone. Um, If, if we are, if we're bold enough to do that and, and be, um, be true to what we say we believe and actually actually walk that walk and and not just talk it, but actually walk that walk. Yeah. So Craig, I'm guessing that's what you would hope for the future then too, to, to live that, to live that life, to walk that walk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would like to see the church not be labeled as hypocrites, but see the church labeled as, as, you know, wow, they're actually doing what they say they do. They, they, what they say they believe that there, there it is in practice. That's that practical. That's that practical bone in me. Paul, what do you hope for the future of Christianity? I, um, I just hope we continue to get out of the way and let the Spirit do what what's good, what what God wants to do. Um, I don't. I know the churches are in disarray right now, and I don't worry at all about the future of the kingdom of God. I just don't, I don't have any concern about yeah. it. I, I, God is in right. God is in control of this movement from Pentecost to this day, and I hope that we will. We, I, I long when I think about individual churches that we can put aside our ego and our control stuff and all of our stuff, our baggage, and we can show up and be present to be a part of the party that God wants to create. It's always an issue. It was an issue in Jesus' day that some people just couldn't get it, could not get themselves ready to walk into the party, and they missed it. It walked right by, and they missed it. And it's happening today, and it's a tragedy. So I just—that's my wish—is that we can just, you know. I like that. I like that. Well, uh, gentlemen, where can people find out more about you and then get a copy of the book? Uh, Paul, uh, give us your stuff first. Um, epicentergroup.org is my website. And um, the book is available to all, all online booksellers. Um, you can get it from um, Upper Room, or you can get it on Amazon, or wherever you wherever you shop. It's there. And uh, I, you can find me at PurposedHeartMinistries.com. Uh, that's uh, both on all your 
all the major, you know, main social media spots and, uh, and, the and my website. And, and yes, the book's available by on Kindle, even it's electronic. Guys, I really recommend the book. Again, it's launching a new worship community. Guys, thanks so much for your time. I hope this is meaningful and practical to many people. And obviously there's a lot of work to be done, but we believe in uh, what we have here and uh, you're hopeful about the future. So thanks so much. Uh, May God's peace be with you. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Yeah.